and I'm reading from the uh, New American Standard Bible. Now I make known to you, let me remind you, brethren, about the gospel which I preached to you. Paul's thinking back the first time he had visited the Christians in Corinth, Greece, as he writes this letter, which you also received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved. If you hold fast to the word, to the gospel, to the message about Christ died for our sins and rose again, which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also had received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised, raised from the dead on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve, and after that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom are still alive now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and to all the apostles again. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. Drop down to verse 12. Now, if Christ is preached by the apostles that he's been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection from the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been resurrected, then our preaching is vain. Notice in verse 2 he says, if you believe this stuff about Jesus and it didn't really happen, it's worthless. Faith is only as good as this object, and the object of saving faith is the crucified, risen Savior. And Paul's saying if that didn't happen, our preaching is vain. It's worthless. It's not worth anything. Moreover, verse 15, we have been found to be liars because we've testified against God saying he raised Christ whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, it's vain. You're still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep, believers who have died in Christ, have perished. If we've hoped in Christ, in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. And we live in a culture that pities us because they don't believe in the resurrection. But now, in fact, the reality is Christ has been raised from the dead. Literally, bodily, supernaturally. You can't reproduce this in a laboratory, but it happened. The first fruits of those who are asleep. For since a man came death by a man, the God-man, also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits. After that, those who are Christ at his coming for the church and the rapture. And then after the end of the end times will come the end when he, Christ, hands the kingdom to God, to the God and the Father, when he has abolished all other rule, authority, and power. For he, Jesus Christ, must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy that will be abolished is brain cancer and murder and war is going to be death. Can't wait. Go down to verse 51, the last couple of verses of 1 Corinthians 15. Behold, I tell you a mystery. This was not revealed in the Old Testament. We're not all going to sleep. There's a generation of Christians who will be resurrected in place at the beginning of the end times in the rapture event. But we're all going to be changed. We're going to get a resurrection body in place. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, see, the president's in the Bible, the trump shall sound. Uh for the trumpet will sound, it's a trumpet, not 
President Trump. And the dead will be raised, resurrected, imperishable, just like Jesus was. And we're all going to be changed. For this perishable, this physical body must put on the imperishable. And this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and when this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying, death is swallowed up in victory. We're not there yet, but we're waiting for it. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is in the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Prophecy is always practical, and here's the bottom line of that prophecy about the rapture event and the end times. Therefore, my beloved brethren, fellow believers, be steadfast, even though the world thinks we're crazy, immovable in the essentials of the moral and doctrinal truths of the faith, always abounding in the work of the Lord, not just on Sundays and Wednesdays, knowing that your toil is not in faith in the Lord. We're going to talk about the real, real meaning of uh, Easter today, which has nothing to do with baskets or uh, bonnets or bunnies, although it doesn't necessarily preclude them. But uh, let's watch another short but powerful video. This morning, we want to think about the real, real meaning of Easter, which has nothing directly to do with Easter baskets, bunnies, or bonnets, because the real, real meaning of, of Easter is that three days after his death on the cross as a substitutionary atoning sacrifice for your sins and, more importantly, my sins, the tomb of Jesus was empty because of his literal bodily supernatural resurrection. And that cha- that fact, the empty tomb, the literal bodily resurrection, changes everything, not just how some of us spend most of our Sunday mornings and Wednesday nights. It changes everything because it smashes the blinders that human beings put on reality. It allows you to answer the three ultimate questions everybody asks directly or indirectly. Who am I? Why am I here? Where am I going after I die? The reality of the literal, bodily, supernatural, we can't reproduce this in a lab for you, resurrection of Christ, it takes some faith, validates, the resurrection validates the saving power of the death of Christ as his atoning sacrifice for us. Christ died for our sins, but he's not dead anymore. Uh, because Christ died for our sins, we don't have to die in our sins. Now, you'll notice on the back of your study notes, I've got some information you need to know about Easter. And I'll let you read that if you want to later. But the bottom line is that many of the modern popular aspects of the celebration of this holiday did come from cultural traditions, not from Scripture. However, the history of that was rather than paganizing the church by putting these pagan customs in the church, the church baptized those traditions with Christian meaning. Now, since Easter isn't about baskets and uh, bonnets and bunnies, some Christians opt out of dealing with that kind of stuff completely. I respect that position. That may be your position. That's cool with me. But, you know, Scripture talks about Spiritual liberty, within the clear teachings morally of Scripture, we have the liberty to hammer out our own convictions. It doesn't say you have to wake up at 5 o'clock in the morning and have a personal quiet time, even though many of the greats of the faith have done that. That's stricter than Scripture. We're supposed to pray all the time, always have the radio on. But 
you may hammer out, in some areas I've hammered out stricter than scripture, scripture, uh, personal convictions, but you're not, you don't use that for your basis for looking down other people's noses. And I'm pretty convinced that most Christians understand that, uh, Easter is not about Easter baskets or Easter egg hunts. I'm also pretty sure I'm strong enough to watch my grandkids and some of your children enjoy an Easter egg hunt without it affecting me spiritually one iota. I'm not going to mistake an Easter egg hunt for denying the resurrection. I think we can actually have a little fun as Christians, and that's the position that I've got now. But the point is, don't let Easter egg hunts or your Easter bonnets or Easter baskets deflect you from the fact that Christ died for our sins but he's not dead anymore, and his resurrection validates the saving virtue of his death for your sins. And because Christ died for our sins, we don't have to die in our sins. So we're going to focus on that today on Easter Sunday 2019. But uh, let's pray we'll be teachable to um, what Matthew says about the resurrection. And also, as is our custom, let's pray for um, those who protect and serve us, you know, Earlier today in Sri Lanka, uh, several hundred Christians were killed because they dared to go to uh, a church on Easter Sunday morning to celebrate the risen Christ. And so we live in a dangerous world that radically misunderstands what we're saying and doing and that um, more and more increasingly seems to want to take violence against us. So we are very thankful for our active military that protect our First Amendment right to do what we're doing today here and all across the country. Also, our peace officers and firefighters. And so, uh, Murray, I want, uh, you know, Murray was a student of mine and now I consider him a dear friend and we're praying him through the rigors of getting an engineering degree at Oklahoma State University. We also need to pray, I'm going to ask you to pray in a minute, we need to pray for Seth Bearden. He volunteered to do this ultra-maniacal marathon up and down the Grand Canyon, and he got dehydrated yesterday, and he's still trying to recoup and get out of the bottom of the rim of the Grand Canyon while his wife waiting on the top. So uh, let's be praying for Seth today. And you guys, when he when he gets his way out of there, let, let somebody know so we can stop praying for him. But, Murray, if you would... Uh, Pray that I'll be brief. That'll be a miracle. Uh, I believe in miracles, but they're rare, you know. Uh, pray that I'll be uh, on point. Let's pray we'll all be teachable, including me, and let's pray for our troops, peace uh, officers, and firefighters. Okay. Thank you, Murray. Um, yeah, in, in the spirit of what I said about Easter bunnies, I mean, you, you can enjoy those if you want to, as long as you don't confuse them with the whole point, which is celebrating the risen Lord. Um, we've got a special abstract thought warmer upper today and we've got some audience participation so uh, I'm going to read kind of the premise for the top five pet peeves of the Easter Bunny and then uh, Clay, uh, Ray, Henry, Jamie and Clay are going to read the punchlines and read them loud brother because we need all the help we can get okay so these are the top five pet peeves of the Easter Bunny number five Every year after Easter is over, he has to clean jelly bean residue. These aren't necessarily laugh out loud funny, Debbie. They're just designed to warm up your capacity for abstract thinking. That's it, okay? Number four, are you ready, uh, Ray? Okay, okay. Don't, don't, don't go yet. Number four. High levels, of st- high levels of stress leading up to the big day causes his bright white tail 
Take that, Dustin. Okay. He's going to want equal time after. The number three, top five pet peeve of the Easter Bunny. You ready, Henry? All of the fake news this spring claiming he's an agent of the mega evil that's what the word is. That's what Newsweek says, and they never lie, right? Okay, Jamie, jealous Facebook post from Santa Claus, Superman, and the Tooth Fairy claiming... The vast majority of the kids' worldwide That was so well read, wasn't that, Krista? That was awesome, man. You got a future. And uh, the number one pet peeve of the Easter Bunny, after gaining 150 pounds in 2018, most people now mistake him... You're welcome. Well, let's move to what's important. <laughs> the real, real meaning of Easter is nicely summed up in the last couple of chapters of the book of Matthew. We're going to see an evening meal, the Last Supper, really a Passover meal, the Lord's arrest in Gethsemane, swordplay, which I may not have told you about in Sunday school, trials, execution on the cross, and then resurrection. But let's change execution to expiation. Expiation is a fancy theological word that means to wipe clean Wipe a debt clean. Born-again believers are uh, just reckless enough to dare to trust their eternal destiny, the forgiveness of their sins and their eternal destiny to Jesus Christ because they've dared to believe that he died to pay their sin debt in their place and he rose again from the bed, dead, not from the bed, from the dead, uh, by, literally, bodily, supernaturally, and literally. So let's look through uh, Matthew 26 through 28, we'll hit just a few highlights. Look at Matthew 26, verse 26. Now, in fact, the, the evening meal, the Passover that remembers the liberation of the nation of Israel from Egyptian bondage, and when the blood of the Lamb was applied to the homes of the Jews, the firstborns were spared. You had to have a, a lamb without any blemish. That was one of many pictures, visual aids in the Old Testament anticipating the coming of the Messiah as the Lamb to be our sin-bearer. But uh, let's read verses 26 through 29 of Matthew chapter 26, looking at the Last Supper, or we're calling it evening meal, to make it spell Easter. Verse 26, while they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it, gave it to the disciples, and said, take, eat, this is my body, this represents my body, he's setting up the communion, which we do uh, in remembrance of his death as we anticipate his return. And when he had given, uh, and when he had taken a cup full of wine, representing his blood, and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine again, until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. He's anticipating his death, and he's talking about the value of his death, his body and his blood as a sac- sacrifice for our sins. In uh, in modern culture, if you're going to buy a house, Jason, you're not going to say, well, I'll, I, I agree to pay you X, and you'll let me have the house, right? We don't have to sign anything, right? You, you sign a bunch of papers. You sign contracts. That's the way we ratify formal agreements. In the ancient world, they would enter into covenants, and they had shoe covenants, salt covenants, and the really important one were blood covenants. And you actually cut an animal in half and put the two halves 
uh, away from each other and kind of form a passageway. And the two human recipients or involvement, people involved in the covenant would walk through it. And the idea was if we break the covenant on either side, as it were, not literally, but let whatever happened to that animal happen to us. So Jesus is saying, what I'm going to do on the cross is going to make a blood covenant so that whosoever believeth on him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Now we, we look at Da Vinci's painting of the Last Supper and we think it's a photograph and it's not. It's actually an artist's representation, Laura. So it's not really what they did. Um, at first century, in that Jewish culture, they would, at formal banquets like this, at a Passover banquet, they would lie on their left side. I'm not sure what left-handed people did. Um, I guess they'd all, they were am, ambidextrous. You know, I'd give my left arm to be ambidextrous. That's just me, but um, I'm not going to say it again, but... Uh, they would lay on their left side and, and, and eat with their, their right hand uh, on a low table. And that's not a photograph. That's kind of what happened there. So that's the evening meal. The Lord's anticipating and announcing what he's about to do the next day. Uh, a in the Easter acrostic or acronym here stands for arrest. After the Last Supper, they go from Jerusalem down to Kidron Valley up on the Mount of Olives. We're going to see that very soon. They're going to be there. Uh, Gethsemane is still there. It's a real place. We're talking about real places, real people, real events. And Judas has sold out the Lord, and so they bring the temple police to arrest Jesus as if he's a uh, horrible, violent felon. They kind of bring kind of shock and awe, kind of uh, 50 or 60 troops, really bad dudes, to arrest him. Look at Matthew 26, verse 30 through 32. After singing a hymn at the end of the Last Supper, in the city of Jerusalem, they went out to the Mount of Olives. It's about a half a mile walk or maybe under a mile. Then Jesus said to them, you will all, he's looking at the 11 believing apostles, you'll all fall away. You're all going to run away when I get arrested because of me this night. For it is written, and then he quotes an Old Testament prophecy in Zechariah, I will strike down the shepherd, that's the Messiah Jesus, and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. They're going to all run away. So it's going to, he's going to do it all by himself. But after I've been raised, he's talking about his resurrection, he's talked about his death, the blood, the body, he's telling you what it all means before it happens. After I've been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. He appears to them in a lot of different places over 40 days, including in Galilee at least a couple of times. But um, yeah, drop down to verse 47, thinking about the arrest. While he was still speaking, he's interacting with his apostles Waiting what he knows is his arrest. Judas, one of the twelve, came up. He left the upper room and set up the arrangement so he could identify. He fingered Jesus, you know, when he brought the, the, the gangsters to, to get him. Uh, Judas, one of the twelve, came up accompanied by a large crowd of these temple police who were mean, mean guys with swords and clubs like Jesus, a real physical danger to people, uh, that, in that stage who came from the chief priests and the elders of the people, the Jewish religious leaders. Now he who was betraying him gave them a sign saying, the one I kiss on the cheek, which was like shaking hands, but it's going to be dark and there are going to be 11 people plus Jesus. It's going to be hard to identify. So I'm going to shake his hand, pet him on the back, and that's the one you arrest. He's the bad guy. Immediately, Judas goes directly to Jesus with the gang of 50 behind him. He says, hail, rabbi, and kissed him on the cheek, patted him on the back, shook his hand. And Jesus said to him, friend, do what you have come for. And they came and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. 
Uh, that's a, a shot from the Passion of the Christ. They did a, quite a nice job, I think, of visualizing what that would have looked like. So we're looking at the real, real meaning of Easter, which is the literal, bodily, supernatural resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And we're using this acronym. E stands for what? Evening meal. A stands for arrest. Now we're going to look at swordplay. In connection with the arrest, we have this description. And it's, it's really interesting. When you look at the four Gospels talking about these events, they give you different but not divergent descriptions. Just like if you had four uh, eyewitnesses to an automobile accident or any kind of traumatic, even if it's exciting and, and positive event, if you get four different eyewitnesses, you're not going to get verbatim uh, testimony. You're going to get four different partial accounts that should be harmonizable, easily harmonized. That's exactly what you get in the Gospels. And I say that for a reason as we look at sword play. Look at Matthew 26, verses 51 through 56. Behold, one of those who were with Jesus in connection with them putting their hands on Jesus and arresting him and taking him for these kangaroo courts so they can kill him the next day. This would have been Thursday night. Behold, one of those who was with Jesus, notice Matthew doesn't tell you it's Peter. Okay, we know it's Peter from the other Gospels, but he's just describing generically. He's not trying to cover for Peter necessarily. He's just not using his name here, but everybody knows who it was. You know, one of those who was with Jesus, one of the 11 believing apostles, when Jesus is arrested here, Peter reached and drew out his sword. So he had conceal and carry back then. You know, he had his, had his paperwork. And struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. Now, so Peter wasn't a very good shot. Now, somebody said gun control is very important. You need to hit what you're aiming at. And uh, more importantly, in the first century, sword control. But this guy had no sword control. He apparently was going to try to do something to stop this, and he accidentally chopped the guy's ear off. So or the guy you know, kind of had some good, good reflexes or whatever happened. Then Jesus said to Peter, put your sword back into, into place. For those who will take up the sword maliciously will die by the sword. Don't you realize that I can appeal to my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? I'm volunteering for this. I'm submitting to this. Don't stop it. It's necessary. You know, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom, right? How then will the scriptures be fulfilled to talk about me being arrested, brutalized, crucified as the lamb of God, resurrected so all that believe can have everlasting life? How then will the scriptures be fulfilled if you get in the way? At that time, uh, Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out, the crowd of temple police, have you come out with swords and clubs and all these, you know, assault weapons, as it were, from the first century to assault me like you would, or to arrest me like you would a, a robber, somebody who's a violent felon? Every day I've been teaching in the temple all week. All day long I've been right in the middle of you and you didn't do anything because they didn't want to do it in front of the public because the public wouldn't like it. But now... All of this has taken place to fulfill the scriptures. We'll talk about that more in a minute of the prophets in the Old Testament. Then all the disciples left him and fled. He told them they were going to do that, right, Bobby? But watch this. So we get a slight description of uh, one of the 12, Peter, cutting off this guy's ear. Um, here's a, a photograph of that. Now, this, expects, this is back from the movie, The Passion of Christ. But it's funny. We don't get the detail that another Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we have four Gospels. Right? Matthew gives us the basic facts. Dr. Luke, Luke, Matt, he's a medical doctor. He tells us it's the right ear, and he also tells us, and you can look this up uh, later in uh, Luke 
thought I wrote it down. Yeah, 22 verses 50 through 51. Jesus stoops down, picks the ear up, and reattaches it supernaturally while there's confusion. Apparently the other 11 are kind of putting up a ruckus. Nobody's but the slave notices Jesus heals his ear. So you're seeing that Jesus is not so obsessed with the important thing he can't actually make uh, things happen for this guy. Okay, E-A-S-T. Let's go E-A-S-T. Is that right? Did I leave one out? I left one out, right? E-A-S-T. Yeah, let's go to T. Let's go to trials. Now, here's the thing. You'll hear people trying to justify anti-Semitism, which is hatred of Jewish people, by saying the Jews crucified Jesus. You ever heard that, Jack? That's that's a bromide that gets out there. The Jews crucified Jesus, so we got to hate all the Jews. That's ridiculous. You know, the New Testament was written by Jews, except for Luke, who was the only Gentile that wrote a New Testament book. He wrote Luke and Acts. But 25 to 27 were written by Jews. Plus, the Jews didn't crucify Christ. Who crucified Christ? The Romans. The Jewish religious leaders who objected to Jesus because he blew their system away. Their system taught if you are really a good, righteous Jewish person, you might be able to earn your way into heaven. That's what they taught. That's what they believed. Jesus blew it away. He said, you know, uh, nobody's good enough. They don't need a savior. I can save anyone who trusts me for it. I'm going to pay their way into heaven and validate the saving, transcendent, after-death powers of this by being resurrected from the dead. So the Jewish leaders set Jesus up, but they don't even have the power of capital punishment in the first century because they're occupied by the Romans. The Romans have to crucify, and they're the only ones that crucified. So we're going to look at, when we say trials plural, that's on purpose because there's actually multiple trials but in generic form, there's Jewish trials, religious trials, and then there's a political trial. Actually, Pilate tries to punt it to somebody else, but he, so he has kind of two hearings. But let's look at the Jewish or the religious trial and then the Roman trial that actually condemns Christ to crucifixion. Your Matthew 26, look at verse 57. We'll read through verse 66. Then those who had seized Jesus on the Mount of Olives led him away to Caiaphas, who was the high priest of uh, Judaism at that time, where the scribes and the elders, the other religious VIPs, were waiting. But Peter, the guy who chopped the guy's ear off, you know, was falling from a distance. He's run away. He's far enough. You can't tell who he is, but he's still watching. He's still concerned. Uh, as far as the courtyard of the high priest, and entered in and sat down with the officers to see the outcome. This was an open kind of thing, a public thing. Now, the chief priest and the whole council kept trying to obtain false testimony, trying to get somebody to lie about Jesus so they could put him to death, or at least uh, consign him to the Romans for putting him to death. But they couldn't find anybody. And even though many false witnesses came forward, um, they didn't line up. But finally, two came forward, and they said, This man stated, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. And that's really interesting. Because that's one of the first things Jesus says at the beginning of his ministry in the Gospel of John. It's never mentioned in Matthew, but Matthew knows about it because this is incorrectly cited here. Now, when Jesus in John 2 said, destroy this temple in three days, I'll raise it up. He's not talking about the physical temple behind him when he said he's talking about his body, he's talking about his resurrection. But a distorted version of that that Matthew doesn't even cite in context now comes back. This is how these things all line up when you compare them. It's amazing kind of stuff. Uh, J. Warner Wallace, who is a cold case homicide detective in Los Angeles County, 
was an atheist who became a Christian in part because he said, when I look at the four Gospels, they line up just like four credible witnesses at a murder site. They, they give you different details, but when you kind of line them up, you can actually fit together and get a fuller picture. So I always thought that was pretty cool that Matthew does that. But yeah, that's, so that's verse 61. Then the high priest stood up and said, Do you not answer, Jesus? Why don't you explain yourself here? Why is it that these men are testifying against it? Why is it that these two men are lying about what you meant when you said that kind of thing? There's no way to answer that. But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest said, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Savior, the Son of God, the incarnation of God. Jesus said, you've said it yourself. You obviously realize that's what I've been saying for three years in my ministry. Nevertheless, I tell you hereafter, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of glory. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, Jesus has just blasphemed. What further need do we have of witnesses? Forget about the due process of law. You've heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He says to his fellows, and they said he deserves death. So they've already believed that before this hearing, but now they're trying to justify it. That's a snapshot of the Jewish religious side of the trials. Now let's look at the political side. Look at chapter 27, verse 11. And the Roman Empire has dominated this region for a 100 years. They have the power of capital punishment. The Jews can suggest it, but the Romans have to sign off. That's why the Roman governor, Pilate, is the one who actually uh, condemns Christ to crucifixion. But let's look at part of this. Look at chapter 27, Matthew, verse 11. Looking at the trials here. Here's the political Roman trial. The Romans are the ones who crucified Christ. Now, Jesus stood before the governor, Pontius Pilate, uh, he is a real person. We found uh, archaeology that confirms that. In fact, he didn't spend a lot of time in Jerusalem. He spent all his time in the Roman capital called Caesarea. And that's one of the first main things we'll see in, in May when we go to Israel. Uh, and the governor, Pontius Pilate, questioned him saying, Are you the king of the Jews? Are you daring to say you've got authority over the Roman Caesar? That's all Pilate's worried about. He's not worried about religious, Jewish religious issues. And Jesus said, it is as you say, and in the Greek that means uh, absolutely yes. Yes, I am the king of the Jews. You know, that's what he's saying there. And while he's being accused by the chief priests and the elders, he did not answer. He didn't respond. Sometimes the best thing you can say is nothing. I have a hard time doing that myself. Don't ask my wife, but, uh, um, yeah, she'll tell you. Then Pilate, it's not, my, it's not what I say. I don't cuss at her. I don't hit, hit her. It's just my tone. I, I need to pot, you know, publicly atone for my sins, you know, because when you're a preacher, you need all the help you can get. But, uh, right there, don't say amen, dear. Uh, then Pilate said to him, uh, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? You're not even going to try to defend yourself at all? And Jesus did not answer him regard to even a single charge in that setting, and the governor was quite amazed. Jesus is cool, calm, and collected. He's totally in control of this thing. He's submitting to this. He could snap his fingers and restart the universe if he wanted to. He refuses to. That's called love. You know what something's worth? What somebody else is willing to pay for it. You know what you're worth? I don't care what you've done, uh, where you've been, who you've lied to, who you cheated. You know, you're worth a lot because God demonstrated his love toward us and that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. This is Jesus submitting when he could have recreated the whole universe. Drop down to verse 24. When Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, the more he lets the religious people talk there, the more out of control the thing spins. 
but they're going to write up a nasty report about him to Caesar if he doesn't check off on this thing. So he reluctantly, but he's still culpable. When he saw he was accomplishing nothing by trying to calm this thing down and trying to go another route than crucifixion, but rather that a riot was starting, he took water, washed his hands in front of the crowd, saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood. This is a total, ridiculous, absurd thing, but I will sign the paperwork so you can crucify him or have my goons crucify him. These would have been Roman soldiers. And all the people said, his blood be on us and our children. Then he released Barabbas. He was trying to get Barabbas to be crucified in Jesus' place. And that, instead, Jesus was crucified for Barabbas and for Wolfgang Dieg and for Danny Pollock and for the sins of the world. Then he released Barabbas, who was a bad dude. Uh, but after having Jesus scourged, that's the scene in the Passion of the Christ that shocked everybody. You know, uh, I'm married to a lady... I'm going to get in big trouble. i got to say this. I'm married to a lady that many years ago went to the Alamo. And who knew the Alamo was surrounded by souvenir shops and stuff? Didn't, didn't that get in the way of Santa Ana and all those people? But it's in downtown San Antonio. You've been there? And so there's a mall right across the way now. They've got this really nice IMAX movie of the Battle of the Alamo. So, of course, I love history. So we, we went and saw that movie. And as we're walking out of the mall to go to the Alamo, from watching a movie about the Alamo, my wife said, well, I never knew the Alamo was so violent. I said, dear, hold it. You know, you got 250 people surrounded by 5,000 infantry and they all get killed. That's what happened at the Alamo, okay? You didn't think that was violent? And you know, I say that because when the movie came out, The Passion of the Christ, which was a long time ago now, I'm dating myself, right? It was like 100 years ago, whenever it was. Um, I should probably know. Uh, so many Christians, and I, I don't just talk to Christians from this church. I talk to Christians all over all over town. We're so shocked by how violent the, the 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 brutalizing of the beating of the Lord was. And I thought, are you kidding me? You were surprised. Now, granted, Matthew doesn't focus on the violence of it. He just says, um, after having Jesus scourged, I mean, ninety nine lashes could kill you. And that was no exaggeration of just how horrible just the beating was. Some people don't survive that. Jesus would have had to have been even in better shape than Seth was before he started yesterday to have survived the brutalizing. And then you go to the cross uh, and hand him over to be crucified. So did the Jews crucify Jesus? The Jewish leaders kind of set him up and pushed it, but the Romans checked off on it. And if Pontius Pilate hadn't signed the paperwork, it wouldn't have happened. Um, yeah, so that's the temple police at the Jewish trial. That's an actor playing Pontius Pilate and Jim Caviezel there uh, in front of him in the foreground. And, of course, his charges was he was Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. That was, those were his charges. That's, that's all they could find about him, which is actually true, of course. Let's go to E, uh, the second E in the Easter acronym, execution or expiation, which means to wipe Something clean, in this case a debt or sin debt clean, refers to the substitutionary atoning sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, look at verse 33. And they came to a place called Golgotha. That's the way you pronounce it in Aramaic. It means the place of the skull. We get Calvary from the Latin translation of the Bible that took Golgotha and translated Calvario. So we call it Calvary. That's the location. It looks like a skull. That's a picture of it. 
they gave him wine to drink mixed with gall, and he was tasting it, unwilling. He doesn't want him to dull any of the sensation. Um, he does get a little moisture right before he says it is finished, and there's a, there's a reason for that at the end. And when they crucified him, they divided up his garments among themselves by casting lots. And that's interesting, you know, uh, that's actually a fulfillment of prophecy. When we think about Bible prophecy, a lot of us tend to think about end times. And so we're living, the Bible's a big book, but Debbie's only got two parts. The Old Testament's all about the stuff that happened before Jesus came and anticipates him coming. New Testament's written by eyewitnesses right after to explain it. And so we're living out here on a timeline somewhere waiting for the end times. And we think of Bible prophecy as second coming of Christ kind of thing. But there's a lot of prophecy about the first coming of Christ. In one of the prophecies in Psalm 22, written about 1000 B.C., said that the, the execution squad of the Messiah would gamble for his clothes. And you see it here. Okay, And when you look at what the Old Testament, what's the Old Testament? It's the part of the Bible written before the first coming of Jesus where he died for our sins as our Savior. The Old Testament talks about two different aspects of the ministry of the Savior. First, he's going to come as a lamb to die for our sins. Then he's going to come as a lion to end human history on God's terms. And we're living somewhere pretty close to the end times. I'm not going to set any dates. But when you look at what the Old Testament prophets say about the cross or the lamb, the death, the the suffering Messiah... It's quite specific. We won't go through all that, but who, where, when, what, and why. And the Old Testament prophesies about the death of Jesus as the Lamb of God who's going to take away the sin of the world. There's a scene from the movie where they're gambling for his clothes. Uh, Matthew mentions that. That was predicted in Psalm 22 in 1000 B.C. That's a fulfillment of prophecy. So they're... Uh, dividing up his garments and casting lots over them. And sitting down, they began to keep watch over him, to watch him die. This is an execution squad. They've done this tens and maybe hundreds of times before. And above his head, they put the charge against him. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Um, And let me see. I want to stay on track here. Drop down to verse 45. So much good stuff, but you can only pick some of it. Uh, Look at verse 45. Now from the sixth hour, that's noon, Darkness fell upon the land, not of the whole planet, not a solar eclipse. It only lasts maybe a couple of minutes. This is just dark clouds. Uh, it's dark because it's during that period from noon to three that God the Father judges Christ for the sins of the world. He bore our sins in his body on the cross. So from noon until the ninth hour, which is 3 p.m., and about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is quoted, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That sounds like Jesus is clueless. What's going on? Why have you forsaken me? That's not what's going on there. That's the first line of Psalm 22. Psalm 22 later talks about them gambling for the Messiah's clothes. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani is the first line in Hebrew of Psalm 22, which is a prophecy that talks about the crucifixion of the Messiah before crucifixion was invented. I'm stretched out, I'm nailed, I'm dying, I'm, I'm dehydrated, they're making fun of me, they've ripped my clothes off me, they're gambling for my clothes. That's one of the most amazing examples of Bible prophecy in your Bible, Jason, written in 1,000 years before Jesus was crucified, before crucifies even, crucifixion's even invention, invented. The Romans used crucifixion for rebels against Rome to publicly force those rebels to submit to Roman authority and to say, if you don't pay your taxes, uh, 
occupied people, that might happen to you. So they're saying Jesus is a dangerous bandito anti-Roman, which he's not. But that's that, those were the charges. The charges aren't always right. Look at verse uh, 47. Some of those who were standing there, when they heard Ali, Ali, they thought he was saying Elijah, calling out for the Old Testament prophet Elijah. No, he's citing the first line of Psalm 22 and saying, Psalm 22 will explain what I'm doing here. Okay? It'd be like if I was talking about, giving a speech about Abraham Lincoln, and I said, four score and seven years ago, that's the first line of the Gettysburg Address. That might be a way for me to segue to say I'm going to talk about three amazing things about Abraham Lincoln. By citing the first verse of Psalm 22, which you and I aren't that familiar with, frankly. I'm not that familiar with it. A little bit. Everybody listening who was Jewish knew what he was doing. He's citing Psalm 22. He's saying he's the Messiah. He's saying he's the fulfillment of this. this he's saying this crucifixion, which was described there, is what's happening right here. So don't misunderstand that. And a lot of people, Bart Ehrman, Richard Dawkins, don't know that and will tell you all kinds of misinformation about little things like that. Immediately one of them ran, uh, taking a sponge, he filled it with sour wine, gave it him to drink. But the rest of them were saying, let's see if Elijah's going to come to save him. So they're totally making fun of him for no good reason. Then Jesus yelled again and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the veil of the temple, which represented the separation that sin, sin makes between God, holy of holies, and fallen man, all of us, including priests, it's ripped apart because at the end of the death of Christ that pays for your sin, that symbol is not needed anymore. The Old Testament is partial, preliminary, and points to the fulfillment of it by the first and ultimately second coming of Jesus Christ. We don't sacrifice animals anymore, even though there's a whole book in the Bible about sacrificing animals in a temple, because all that was partial, preliminary, and pointing to what Jesus just did on the cross. And so God rips that veil so the priests would get it, but they still don't get it, right? This is Isaiah 53, written in 700 B.C. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. He bore our sins in his own body on the cross. And by his wounds we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord, God the Father, has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's unbelievable. And that's exactly what must be believed to be saved. You know, it's not easy to believe that. Unless God's turned the lights on for you, it's not going to happen. Uh, this is a nice image, I think, an aerial view from the movie of what the crucifixion would look like. The guys on either side weren't thieves. They were bad, murderous rebels against Rome. The Romans didn't crucify thieves. They only crucified rebels, violent rebels against Rome. And that's a nice image. But here's the thing. The New Testament clearly says, Krista, the reason Jesus does all that is because of you and everybody else. Nobody's so good they don't need this to apply to them. Nobody's so bad they can't have it. Second Corinthians 5 says... He, Jesus, who knew no sin, who committed no sin, the perfect, flawless, righteous God-man Savior, was made to be a sin offering for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Uh, when it says he takes, takes wine and says something and then he gives up his spirit, Father, in my hands, thy hands I commit my spirit. We know from the other Gospels, John 19.30 to be exact, that he takes that wine so he's got enough moisture he can shout one word, Tetelestai, that means paid in full. Now your English translations will say it is finished, and it is finished 
could be kind of like every 10 years when OSU beats OU playing football, at the end of that game, the OU demoralized, and you need to get used to it. We you, we lose to you a lot more than you lose to us, you know. They say it is finished, you know, it's all over. We'll get them next year. It is finished can be a whimper of resignation, right? Uh, that's a bad English translation. Tetelestai doesn't mean it is finished. It means paid in full. They would write it on bills of sale after you bought a donkey. They put tetelestai, meaning it's paid in full. So nobody can say you stole that donkey. Jesus is saying, Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, I'm the Messiah. I'm the issue. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Now, will you trust him for that? That's really the issue. The, the payment has been made. The Bible stresses Nobody's good enough to earn their way to heaven. If righteousness comes by the law, by the list of rules God gave his Old Testament people, and the good people go to heaven, bad people go to hell, then Christ died needlessly. If people could earn it, if really, really good people like uh, Olga Pollock could earn it, why is God sending his son on this kind of a mission? Because nobody's good enough to earn it, right? If the law was able to give life, then righteousness would have been based on the law, and God would have just graded on a curve and given the top 10% or the top 5% or 1% or top 20% or wherever he draws it. But in fact, we're told, for by grace, unmerited favor, we're saved through faith in Jesus Christ. We're daring to believe he died our sin debt and rose again to validate it, and he's the issue of eternal life. But Ephesians says, for by grace, unmerited favor, are ye saved through faith. Faith is a rational act through the common and efficacious grace of God we're able to express in the saving power of Jesus, but it's not a meritorious work. For by grace are you saved through faith in Jesus Christ, what he did on the cross, validated by his resurrection, not of ourselves. It's the gift of God. If I give uh, uh, Jamie a $500 Titleist driver and say, you're my oldest son, you're a golfer, you're better than I ever was. He is so good, it's, it's pitiful. Of course, he plays more golf than Mickelson, just so you'll know. But it's all legal and stuff. But if I gave him a $500 Tyler's driver as a gift, and then a week later sent him a bill for $500, would that be a gift? Now, I wouldn't give Jonathan a $500 driver because you don't want it, but I'd, you know, I'd give you something else that you want. You know, It'd be probably... Uh, um, He's a graphic designer. He's the world's greatest graphic designer, but the Peter Principle has advanced him to where he doesn't do that much graphic design anymore, unfortunately. But uh, that wouldn't be much of a gift, would it, Jamie? If I gave you a gift on t- Monday and then Tuesday, here comes the bill in the mail. Salvation is something God does for you. It's not anything you do for God. Now, he doesn't just give you a good out of hell free card when you trust Jesus Christ. He gives you a whole new capacity to serve him but all that good stuff we want to see that preachers tend to make pre-qualifiers is in effect, it's the fruit, it's not the root. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's based on the work of Christ for you, uh, not of works, lest any man should boast, for we are his workmanship as, cre- as believers created in Christ for good works. So Holly, we're not saved by good works, we're saved for good works. Good works like showing up for church on Sunday and looking so nice isn't a cause or the root of your salvation, it can and should be one fruit or effect. But going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than going to a, uh, a kitchen makes you cook, you know? Salvation is available to all the ones Christ died for of all colors, countries, cultures, denominations, generations who dare to trust Jesus Christ alone for their eternal life. What does he himself say? 
I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even when he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never really die. And then he says, do you believe this? That's the thing. It's unbelievable, but God calls you to believe it. Who said this one? This is John 6.40. This is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son with the eyes of faith and believes in him will have eternal life. And I myself will raise him up on the last day. Is that any good? Who said that? Jesus said that, okay? Dare to take him at his word. If you've never trust Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, today can be the day of your salvation. Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. I mean, is that so bad to admit? I mean, you know, you know, I mean, I break God's standards at my worst, and I break my own at my worst, you know? I mean, to say that I'm a sinner just means that I'm flawed, finite, and messed up, you know, and we all are, you know. Listen, everybody seems normal till you get to know them. You realize that, right? You figure that out when you get old like me. Bible says we've all sinned. You need to fess up on that. Stop blaming mom for it all, you know. I blame my wife for some of it, but it's never her fault. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. We can't fix it ourselves, but we don't have to. God demonstrated his love toward us. Christ died for us. He paid for our sins, rose again, trust him for everlasting life. I like what the leper says. If you are willing, you can make me clean. What does Jesus say? I'm willing. Be cleansed. It's not mental. It's full consent of the will as the spirit opens your eyes and your heart to see and believe. Uh, we won't go there, and we're going to get to the resurrection today, but we're going to finish with that. I'm saving the best for last. We're still on the cross right now. Um, one of the two thieves, and they weren't thieves, they were murderous rebels, uh, in the midst of the crucifixion says something. Do you believe in deathbed conversions? Jesus does. This guy's dying next to him, and, and both of them are cussing at Jesus for a couple hours, and then the, the one guy says, this guy must be the Messiah. He's just saying Psalm 22. Even the criminals knew Psalm 22 back then. He's saying he's Messiah. I, I believe it. Uh, you know, and he says, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. Okay. And Jesus said, man, I wish you'd talk to me about that last week because man, you got to clean it up, man. You need to get to the rabbi. You need to do this. You need to do that. You need to quit this, quit that. What does Jesus say to that guy? And he's, he doesn't even say Lord. He says, Jesus, remember me when you come your kingdom. I'm a sinner. I can't fix it. You can. I want you to. I'm not a theologian. I don't understand expiation, propitiation or sanctification. But I want you to be my Savior, full consent of the will. What does Jesus say? Today you will be with me. This had to be all of grace, all about what Jesus does for you, and just childlike faith. You don't have to be a theologian and be saved. Once you get saved, you need to become one, because it will make you understand a lot of cool stuff. Looking at Easter, that's our invitation, okay? I'm Calvinistic enough to believe that you put the gospel out there and God draws those who are going to come to faith. Uh, you can do it right where you sit. We could play just as I am 17 times, but uh, I'm not a very good piano player, so we're not going to do that today. Evening meal, arrest, sword play, trials, expiation. What does that mean? The wiping of the debt. That's what Jesus did on the cross. Resurrection. That's the whole thing. That changes everything. Look at Matthew 28. Now, after the Sabbath, Friday crucifixion, Sabbath Saturday, now Sunday morning as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene, who had a whole closet full of craziness in her life before she came to faith in Jesus. And the other Mary came to look at the grave. They're not expecting 
a empty tomb. They're just trying to finish the burial that got abbreviated because Friday uh, late afternoon, as the sun goes down, it's Sabbath. You can't work on Saturday under that uh, economy. And behold, a severe, severe earthquake had occurred, and the stone had been moved away by that and some angels. And the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning, supernatural stuff you can't reproduce in the lab. And his clothing white as snow, and the guards shook for fear. They had posted guards, Roman guards, to make sure nobody stole the body, but they're gone. And the angel said to the women who come in the aftermath, Don't be afraid. I know who you're looking for. Jesus has been crucified. He's not here. For he has risen, just like he told you was going to happen. Come see the place where he's lying, where he was lying. And they see the wrappings, but his body has been resurrected. Go quickly, tell his disciples he's been risen from the dead. Behold, he's going to, going to go ahead of you into Galilee. You're going to see him in multiple places. It's not hallucination. Multiple groups of people over the next 40 days. We've told you. Uh, and they left the tomb quickly with fear. It's just too good to be true. And great joy and ran to report to his disciples. Behold, Jesus met them and greeted them. The resurrected Jesus. And he came and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. It's a, it's a bodily, supernatural, physical resurrection. Not just the spirit. And Jesus said to them, don't be afraid. Stop being afraid is what it says in the Greek text. Take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee, and there they will see me. Now watch this. Here's the first attempt to explain this thing away. And while they were on their way, some of the guard came to the city and reported to the chief priests that this angelic being came, an earthquake, and they, they left. And when they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, the elders, the religious leaders, gave them a large sum of money, the soldiers, the guards, and said, you are to say his disciples came by night. You know, the ones that were too afraid to stand up for him in Gethsemane. They came by night, you know, forced us out of the way and stole the body. Um, I guess while he was, while they were asleep. Now watch this. If they had been asleep, how would they have known that had happened? But the point is they show up and they steal the body. And if this should come to the governor's ears, uh, punch it, pilot, don't think, we'll, we'll cover it over for you. We'll take care of you. And they took the money and did as they had been instructed. And this story was widely spread among the Jews to this day. The disciples stole the body. Um, we can't tell you for sure it's still empty. okay? And the empty tomb means that the resurrection was bodily, not just spiritual, not just the spirit of Jesus. Uh, here's some folks. Bonnie Aldridge. We were talking about Bonnie Aldridge. That's, that's her. These are local people. These are real places, real events. Love these pictures. That's uh, Debbie, my, my wife. There's Tom Robertson. There's Bonnie. There's Jean right there. That's you, Jean. Yeah. No? I thought it was. Somebody like you was there. I love this picture. This is me taking a picture of my son, Jonathan, taking a picture of Jamie and Kristen uh, watching Julie go into the empty tomb while Ron is respectfully maintaining his distance to give his wife full access to the empty tomb. And there's me saying, hurry up, we've got to get on the bus or the guy's going to be mad at us after we've spent a time there. But there's, there's Homer, right? Uh, that's my favorite picture. Let's uh, end like this. Number one, Easter celebrates the literal, bodily, supernatural resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It validates the virtue of his substitutionary atoning sacrifice. And the literal, bodily resurrection validating the sacrifice on the cross, is what the gospel is. This is the gospel. Christ died for our sins according to Scripture. He was raised again according to Scripture. We use gospel as an adjective. we got gospel jamborees and gospel bookstores and gospel this and gospel that, and I like all those things. But it's a noun. It refers to specific truth about the death and resurrection of Christ. 
Christianity is based on reality, not just spiritual concepts like a literal bodily resurrection. Christ did not die just as a virtuous martyr, but as the Lamb of God to make us savable. And the saving virtue of the death of Christ is validated by his resurrection. You know what? A dead Savior can't get anybody from Oklahoma in heaven. The resurrected one is the only one who can. And if you've not trusted in Jesus Christ as the resurrected Savior, that's this is one more invitation. You can do it right where you sit. Oh, Jesus, I am a sinner. It's my fault. I can't fix it. I believe you died to pay for my sins and rose again, and I accept you. I trust in you alone to save me. If you if you can't pay for my way, I'm not going in. Okay? But I'm going to put... My hope is built on nothing less. Did we sing that, James? Than Jesus' blood and righteousness. All these great hymns are based on that. And sometimes you see it and don't hear it. We do not believe we're going to heaven because we're better than Joe Sixpack who decided to stay home and drink another beer this morning. That's not the issue. The issue is all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. For those of us who are believers, as we get ready for the Easter egg hunt, be immovable, be steadfast. You know, this is worth it. It's not just pie in the sky, but it is heaven, Jesus in the sky forever. But we've got things to do and should be excited about doing it while we're given some time here on planet Earth. Okay? Several word of prayer. Father, I pray that all of us would have thankful hearts for your saving purposes as the architect of the plan of salvation to send the Son as the active agent of redemption such that the Holy Spirit can convict of sin, righteousness, and judgment, can draw and open hearts to see and believe as the activating agent of salvation. For anyone here this morning who's not trusted Christ alone, I pray that your Holy Spirit would, like a laser beam, like a tractor beam, draw them to the Savior that they might, with active receptive trust, put their wholehearted trust in Jesus Christ alone for forgiveness of sins and the gift of eternal life. For the, I think the majority of us, probably the vast majority of us who have trusted Jesus Christ, let us uh, never compromise these dear truths, even though they're considered to be foolishness, absurdity, to an increasingly secular culture and, and let them and our Lord be at the very center of our pie chart, not just on Sundays and Wednesdays, but every day, including today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.